I want to go back just to a little bit of uh, that which Dennis read to you a few moments ago. At the beginning of the chapter, it says, In the spring, when kings normally went out to war, and if you skip down a little bit further, it says, But David stayed in Jerusalem. Now, understand, for centuries, uh, armies have kept their top generals and leaders pretty much safe. They kind of sometimes keep them back in the ranks or maybe short distances where they were involved. Even sometimes the general would stay at home. Now, the Ammonite capital, which was under siege, the capital city of Rabbah, was less than 40 miles away from Jerusalem. And so David could easily control this battle, trusting the reports that he would get from his top general, Joab. That might have been the reason why he was at home. But whatever reasons David had for staying in Jerusalem, it becomes very clear pretty quickly that there was more than military strategy uh, that was afoot. David, as most of us know, was a warrior king. And ordinarily, David would not only be out on the front lines, he would be out in the front of his troops, leading his troops in the battle because he was a warrior for God and because he detested God's enemies. But something was wrong with David. Maybe David had fought too many wars, too many battles, and now he was a little bit tired. Maybe David had even grown a little bit too soft, you know, living in that palace, wine, women, and song. We don't know for certain, but we know that David was at a very low point in his spiritual vitality. His heart had lost its edge, and he was slowly drifting away from his God. Now, I know that there are a lot of people who find it really hard to understand that simply doing nothing can be dangerous. But, you know, simply doing nothing can also eat away at our spiritual vitality and our relationship with God. I mean, we can just see that in our normal daily occurrences. I mean, relationships, if you don't work at them, they fall apart. Next week, I'm going to speak about the need for friendship. And, and what I did this week was I sent out emails to a lot of people, and I sent out, posted on Facebook and said, what is a friend? Describe it to me. And, I, and one of the answers that I got back, the person said, this isn't what you want to hear, and I want you to know it's not you. But, you know, there are sometimes people that you know, and because we don't call or we don't write or we don't email, we just drift apart to the point that we have nothing in common anymore. Maybe that's what was going on in David's life. He was just neglecting his relationship with God. Those of you who are gardeners also know that a beautiful garden can be completely destroyed by what? Doing nothing. Just watching it die. People die prematurely by neglecting their health, ignoring warning signs, not making necessary adjustments. In the book of Proverbs, you see it on your outline, I think it might be on the screen too, Solomon kind of describes this to us. He said, you sleep a little, you take a nap. You fold your hands, you lie down to rest. And if you do, guess what? Soon you'll be poor as if you'd been robbed. You'll have as little as if you had been held up. So as the story goes, David could not sleep one night. He gets out of bed, and he decides to take a walk around his terrace. Now, there's no indication from the Bible that David is out on the prowl, that he's looking for something. But how many of you know that when your guard is down, 
the devil will set you up. Or to put it the way my friends in prisons would put it, when you're feeling down, the devil will mess you up. But when God lifts you up, he will mess the devil over. That's what they would say. But when you are down, the devil will mess you up. And so here's Bathsheba bathing in the privacy of her own backyard, which was not unusual, assuming she was alone, did not count on having a peeping Tom or a peeping David. But the king sees her, asks who she is, tells her, send for her. Now, you might say, hey, this is a married woman. She could just say, hey, take a hike. But you do not refuse the invitation of the king. She was obligated to obey his command. Now, i got to tell you, this was not adultery on Bathsheba's part. This would be what I would call royal rape. That's all it was. David blatantly abused his position as God's chosen man to be king over that kingdom. Well, you know how the story goes. Days go by, a few weeks go by, and then David gets an email one morning. Well, probably not an email. He may have even forgotten about this by this point, but he finds out that she is pregnant. Now, David is a master planner. He is a master soldier. He is a master strategist, so he immediately has got this one all figured out. He concocts what he thinks is a foolproof plan. Now, have any of you ever done something really stupid and then concocted a foolproof plan? Oh, man. Been there, done that many times. See, it's still early in the pregnancy, so if he can get Bathsheba's husband, Uriah the Hittite, home, and by the way, when it says, go home and wash your feet, David has a little bit more in mind than washing his feet. See, he figured if Uriah would come home and sleep with Bathsheba, she could tell him that she was pregnant and Uriah would shout, I'm a daddy. But David totally underestimates Uriah. Uriah was not a common soldier. You read elsewhere in the scripture, Uriah the Hittite was one of David's 30 valiant men. It meant that he was one of David's green berets. He was part of David's special ops. He was, he was really a tough guy, which probably explained why he lived so close to the palace. Uriah had been with David ever since those days when David was being chased all over the landscape by King Saul, who was trying to kill him. And so here we see a sharp contrast between Uriah the Hittite, a Gentile, and David the Jew. Verse 9 of what we, what we heard before says that Uriah didn't even go to his own house. He probably thought he would be compromising his own convictions. His own soldiers are out in the field. Why should he have the luxury of spending time with his wife? And so he sleeps out in the servants' courts. Now you got David here, who should have been out in the fields with his troops, and you've got Uriah, who is so committed to God and so committed to the king that he will not even sleep in, in the comfort of his own bed. David is really bummed out the next day, and so he has to go to plan two. Uriah, let's come and talk about the war, and we'll tip back a few. And they do that until Uriah is drunk. And now David says, well, this is going to work even better. Get him home. He's going to be so drunk, he's not going to remember whether he sleeps with his wife or not. 
but the deal is good, but the next morning he's going to go back to the front with a little bit of a hangover, and I'll be off the hook. But that doesn't work either, because Uriah does not go home. He sleeps in the servants' quarters, and now David's got to go to plan three. He begins to prepare to do the unthinkable. It's still early in Bathsheba's pregnancy, so if he can somehow get Uriah out of the picture, he can quickly marry the widow, and, you know, who counts dates anyway, you know, six, seven, eight, nine months from whatever. And maybe he can actually hide his sin completely. No one will ever know. They'll just say, wow, David, you sure got her pregnant awful quick. But the callousness of David's heart is further exposed by this terrible plot to murder Uriah. He sends the death sentence to Job, Joab, in the hands of Uriah the Hittite himself. Now, I want you to notice something. This will be up on the screen. Here's what Uriah's name means. Uriah means, my light is the Lord. I mean, what irony you have here. David, a man after God's own heart, has allowed his heart to get so dull, so black, so hardened, that he's about to dis- extinguish the light of the Lord in Uriah. Now, you read a little bit further, you know that Uriah is sent to the front lines where the, he- the battle is heaviest. He's killed with a whole bunch of other soldiers who should not have been anywhere close to being under that wall where they could be killed so easily. Joab, we know, sends back a kind of a cryptic note that lets David know that Uriah the Hittite is dead. His note almost sounds as if he's a little bit sad that this has happened, but David sends him back another note that is really pretty chilling. David wrote Joab and said, Do not let this thing displease you, for the sword devours one as well as the other. Almost a veiled threat. When the news of Uriah's death reached David, he thought he was off the hook. He had covered his sins, he'd covered his tracks, all was fine. But then David's conscience began to bother him. Has that ever happened to you? You know, you've done something really terrible, you've concocted all of these plans. You know how you tell one lie, you always got to tell another lie to cover that lie and on and off. And finally, you know, your, your, your goose is cooked and now your conscience really begins to plague you. In Psalm 32, 3, uh, David records how he felt when he was trying to cover his sin. He said, when I kept things to myself, I felt weak inside. I moaned all day long. I've thought about that. I mean, I, I, you know, there have been times I kind of walk around in a mopey attitude, and some people come up and they say, is everything okay? And sometimes I go, oh, yeah, sure, everything's okay. But deep down inside, I know it really isn't. Have you ever done that with somebody? You come up and you go, how are you doing And they go, oh, just fine. And you look at them and you know it's not fine. There's something stirring deep down inside. How many of you have ever read Edgar Allan Poe's The Telltale Heart? Anybody ever read that book? I remember reading that, I think, in high school literature class a long time ago at Concordia High School, way back in Seward, Nebraska. The main character in that story commits murder and then buries uh, the body of the victim in his basement. But then he's unable to escape the guilt of that crime because he continues to hear 
that heartbeat down in the basement. And the longer he listens, the louder that heartbeat gets. It finally drives him absolutely crazy, only to find out that that's not the heartbeat of the dead guy that's beating so hard down the basement. It's his own heart that's pounding inside of himself. You've got to wonder if David did not feel that way. The guilt was almost unbearable. And I don't know whether you can put yourself in his sandals. Have you ever been in a situation where the guilt of what you had done was just unbearable? He didn't know what to do, but remember what last week? God knew what to do, didn't he? He sent a good friend. He sent Nathan, the prophet, who was a good enough friend, who had enough courage to put his finger in David's face and say, you're the man, you're the one who's done this. See, God loved David so much that he didn't want to see him destroy himself. He didn't want to see him destroy his kingdom. And when David is confronted by Nathan, he immediately, immediately acknowledges this terrible thing he's done. It says he falls on his face before God. And out of that experience flows Psalm 51. Now, guess what? I've just given you the introduction to the sermon. Shall we get to the message of the day? Why not? Psalm 51 is really where this hinges off. I've just told you where David is and what's going on in his life. But we know, if you have your Bibles, you open up to Psalm 51, it says, the Psalm David wrote after his sin with Bathsheba and his murdering of Uriah the Hittite. What Psalm 51 does is take us on the path to redemption. And that's what I want to close with today. The path to redemption. It is the pathway from condemnation to confidence. I'm going to tell you where it starts. There are four C's I'm going to talk about. Sorry, we're not doing the the three C's of the Christian Construction Company. These are the four C's, but you can change your commercial next week. It starts with this C of confession. In the confession, and you see what David says in Psalm 51, For I know my transgressions and my sin. And I'm going to stop right there because those are two different words, transgressions and sin. And if you look at them in the Greek and the Hebrew, they are different words. Transgressions means I have overstepped my bounds and gone where I should not have been. And that's basically what David did. David had no business in somebody else's bed. He had no business bringing somebody else into his marriage bed. He had gone where no man should go. He had transgressed. Sin, one definition that's often used of that, I think the Greek word is amartia, which means to miss the mark. It's kind of like a bow and arrow. You're you're aiming an arrow and it's supposed to hit the bullseye, but if it doesn't, you have sinned. So David had missed the mark. He had gone where he was not supposed to have been. And he says, that sin is ever before me. Everywhere I go, he says, I see it, I feel it, I touch it, I taste it, I smell it. And then he acknowledges, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil. And by the way, there's a third definition. Evil, crookedness, my crookedness is ever before you. Solomon adds, I think this is on your outline somewhere from Proverbs 28. He said, if you hide your sin, you will not succeed. I think most of us know that. 
you know, whatever we do, sooner or later, gets uncovered. And just like taking a rock and lifting it up, you see all that icky, crawly stuff underneath. That's what happens when you hide it for so long. Solomon says, if you confess and reject them, though, what? You will receive mercy. What a wonderful thing. Well, confession, that's where it starts, but it goes to the second C, which is contrition. It's one thing to say, I have sinned, and I have sinned against you, but now comes contrition. David says in verse 17, the sacrifice God wants is a broken spirit. You will not reject a heart that is broken and sorry for sin. Now, David would be what I would say truly repentant. To be contrite does not mean to feel bad about your sin. Because I'll be honest with you, I had this one down pretty good growing up. I always felt bad for my sin. I felt bad that you found out. I felt bad my grandma and grandpa heard about it. I felt bad when the dean of students in high school called me in and told me what I'd done. You feel bad? Yeah, I feel bad, all right. I felt bad when the dean of students called me in in college. You feel bad about this? Yeah, I feel bad about this. When the guy stuck his finger in my face, my Nathan in college, and said, you're just a gangster, that's all you'll be, that's all you are, that's all you'll ever be, do you understand it? Yeah, I understand it. I understand you know. I'm sorry you know. I'm sorry it didn't work out for you. I'm sorry you feel bad about it. I feel real bad, too. That's not what contrition means. Not at all. To feel contrition means to feel crushed. It means to feel crushed under the weight of your sin for what you've done. It means a genuine disgust of what you've done, as well as the determination to never, ever do it again. There was once a man who wrote a letter to the IRS, the Internal Revenue Service. He wrote this, I haven't been able to sleep because I, when I filled my, or filed my income tax, I deliberately misrepresented my income. I'm enclosing a check for $450, and if I still can't sleep, I'll send you the rest. <laughs> that is not contrition. Contrition is this deep repentance that takes ownership of your sin and like David says, I, I acknowledge my sins, my transgressions, they're always before me. So I confess my sins and I show that proper contrition, but then contrition leads to cleansing. This is where it gets good. This is the cleansing part. David says in verse uh, 7, Take away my sin and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. I just have to tell you this. You know, Bible translators sometimes have a hard time with this. You know, it doesn't snow much here, but, you know, having lived through the great blizzard of 2010, we do know what it's like this year. But, you know, how do you describe snow to somebody who's never seen it? Uh, I've seen two Bible translations where it said, wash me and I will be whiter than the inside of a coconut. I mean, that to a South Sea Islander makes sense. But wash me so that I will be clean. If you look at the Hebrew word for wash, you're going to find out that it does not mean just to wash your hands or to wash your face. It's not the rinsing out of a plate or a cup underneath uh, the faucet. 
It means the washing of clothes literally by beating or pounding them against a rock as they would have done in that day. Or as some of you that are old enough remember, pushing them against that old scrub board. That's what it means to scrub them on that scrub board. See, David is praying for a cleansing from the inside out. He wants a thorough cleansing. It's kind of like what Peter said. Well, then, don't just wash my feet, wash all of me. In Psalm 51, most of you are familiar with these words where it says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Don't cast me away from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. I don't like feeling the way I did. I want to feel good again. I want the joy of Jesus. Don't we sing that song? You got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. You know that song? Yeah, that's what we want. We want the joy of Jesus back down in our heart. I'm going to apologize before I give this next illustration. Some of you aren't going to like it. But it's not going to keep me from using it. I tested this one out on Vicky. <laughs> I don't think she liked it. <laughs> but I'm going to use it anyway. I, I heard this story not long ago, but it was about carpet cleaners. Carpet cleaning businesses sometimes offer a special service for removing pet urine odors from your house. To show potential customers the need for their services, what they do is turn all the lights off in the house and then turn on a powerful black light, and the black light causes the urine crystals to glow in the dark. Now, to the horror of most pet owners, every drop and every dribble can be seen, not only on the carpet, but on the walls, on the drapes, the furniture, and even as high as lampshades. The person who told me this is a carpet cleaning salesman said he had many a customer who begged him to shut off the light. They said, I don't care what it costs. Clean this up. And another woman ran shrieking out of her house saying, I'll never be comfortable in there again. Well, you know, the, as bad as that is, guess what? The stains were there all the time. But it was invisible until what? Until the light exposed it. Now, it would be really cruel of that carpet salesman, that carpet cleaner to come in and go, Oh, wow, have you got problems. <laughs> See ya. See, he brought the light to bear. Why? So that they would desperately want his cleaning service. Now, in the same way, what does God do? I was taught growing up that the law is an SOS. It shows us our sins. God shines the light of his law on our life and exposes that which is wrong so that we desperately desire the gospel, which is the other SOS. shows us our Savior, the cleansing side of that. See, God shows us the blackness of our hearts not just to make us feel guilty and then walk away and say, gosh, you guys are in deep weeds, but because he wants to cleanse us. And that cleansing, when God says, I will forgive your sins, 1 John 1, verse 9, what does it say? If you confess your sins, I, I will, God is, is quick to forgive and do what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness, that deep cleaning. 
And when he does that deep cleaning, guess what happens? We get back that joy of salvation. And see, with that joy comes strength again. And with that strength comes this fourth C. We can live life in confidence again one more time. I mean, David must have been beaten down. But when he was cleansed, he could walk out. Kind of like Luther used to talk about remembering our baptism every day to drown that old Adam. And then we walk out a new man with confidence. You know, if you jump ahead from where we were today in, in, to Second uh, Samuel chapter 22, David has written another psalm by this time. I want to read you part of his psalm. Uh, yeah, I think I got it up. This is from Psalm 18. It commemorates the power and the work of God in his life. David said, the Lord delivered... I want you to think of this in light of the sin and everything he did with David with Bathsheba and Uriah. Listen to what David says later. The Lord delivered me because he delighted in me. The Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he has recompensed me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. What do you think of that? There'd be some people who say, is David nuts? Is David delusional? Has David deceived himself? You know, I have not wickedly departed from God. You go, hold it. What about Bathsheba? Hold out about all the other stuff. No, David is not delusional. David is right when he says that. And if you look at the proof is in 1 Kings 14.8, where his where in his rebuke to King Jeroboam, the Lord says, You are not like my servant David, who always obeyed my commands and followed me with all his heart. He did only what I said was right. See, the truly amazing thing, the truly amazing testimony here about David's life is that after his great big sin, what did he do? He followed the four C's. And when God cleans your sins, how much is left? None. And so, in effect, guess what? You're on God's good side. You've been straightened out again. And because of that deep repentance without making an excuse, God extended to him his full grace. You know, that G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. All of everything God ever did for him through Jesus, he gave him all of it. He gave him all of his forgiveness. Now, sometimes what do we do when people do stuff we don't like? We say, well, okay, I forgive you, but I'll never forget. And we just toss stuff back in people's faces left and right. You've got to have a sermon about that. I mean, don't be throwing stuff in people's faces all the time. I don't like that. I mean, a dog doesn't like it when you blow in its face. What makes you think a human being likes it when you blow in their face all the time? Tossing it up. I know we're not perfect, but come on, folks. Ah, what am I saying? Build a bridge, get over it already. He had this full forgiveness. Now, we know from last Sunday there were some consequences to his sin. We know that. There's always blowback against, you know, with every kick, there's a kickback. We know that David's child born to Bathsheba died. We know that David's daughter, Tamar, was raped by her half-brother, Amnon. We know Absalom, his, David's son, was so upset that he murdered Amnon. We know that Absalom uh, rebels against David and then sleeps with his concubines in full view of everybody on the palace roof. We know that Absalom attempted to dethrone David and is murdered in the process by Joab. And we know that that once unified kingdom of God is now split 
And yet, even though the consequences of his sin, the consequences were always there before him, David could still live with confidence. Why? Because he understood forgiveness. There's a good question. Friends, do you understand forgiveness? You know, most of us here, I, I, I would venture guess, most of us here know that we are forgiven. When we went through the confession of sins before, and I said something at the end to the effect that your sins are forgiven, we know that they're forgiven. Past sins, recent sins. And yet I think a lot of people still live their lives in this grayness of self-condemnation. They kind of live in that gray world that has no joy or no fruitfulness because they just can't really believe that God would truly forgive and move on. And part of that is because of the consequences, and there are consequences. I mean, some of you may be feeling the effects of the consequences of sin today. You know, your sins of neglect or your sins of spiritual apathy or just flagrant disobedience, sins that allowed rebellion or division or dysfunction into your heart and into your family. Uh, Greg Lewis, a Christian author, once said, a guilt works like an inescapable videotape machine that refuses to forget the mistakes that we made. See, that's why David said, deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. See, David was truly penitent for the murder of Uriah, yet he knew that the guilt, that guilt served no purpose. I'll tell you today, friends, if you have confessed the sin and you still feel guilty, you haven't quite figured out what true forgiveness is all about. Guilt is not there because Jesus decided to leave that on you just to teach you a lesson. Guilt is what the devil piles on you to make you doubt God's forgiveness. See, David knew he would take the consequences of his sin, and he lived in the confidence that that cleansing would bring. That's an amazing understanding of forgiveness. And even though his heart had been crushed by his shame and sorrow, David knew the magnitude of God's mercy. And once his sins were forgiven, once his sins were confessed, once his sins were purged, David dared to ask God back for his choicest gift, and that gift of what? Joy in the Holy Spirit. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And the really neat thing is that David even takes us a step further. He's gone from his point of confession to contrition to cleansing to confidence. But now he says, Lord, use me. He says in verse 13, Then I will teach your ways to those who do wrong and sinners will turn back to you. David says, I can now use this example. I can use this in my testimony to help people come to know you. Friends, when I hear this story, I think the most beautiful part of this is what God did, that what God did for David, he will do for each and every one of you. You know, we get weighed down with our guilt long after God has forgiven us. We just need to follow his pathway back to forgiveness and then trust God's promise to cleanse us. And God's promise to cleanse us is also in another of David's Psalms where he says, As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. I think about how God cleans us up, friends, from the inside out. We're clean when we've been forgiven. When you hear those words, even if you hear a pastor say, 
you know, as a called and ordained servant of the word, I announce the grace of God unto all of you, and your sins are forgiven in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. If you've confessed those sins, they're gone, never to be remembered. And he's done it from the inside out. And guess what? How should our praise come? Our praise, I want to suggest you, should come from the inside out, too. That's what Mark and Laura are going to be singing about this morning, from the inside out.